Welcome to The Returning Citizen. Quick reminder that anytime we mention a program or events, it's linked under this episode on TheReturningCitizen.org. We also want to remind everyone that the U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration of any country on Earth. Most of these folks return home as our neighbors. 10,000 ex-prisoners are released from state and federal prison every week. Needless to say, everybody wins when we help these returning citizens be successful. Thanks, Imani. I'm Jacob Smith, a Detroit-based entrepreneur and social justice organizer. And I'm Imani Mixon, a Detroit-based and embraced writer. And today we are talking about wrongful convictions and exoneration. So exoneration is a term used for when someone gets released from prison after having been uh, initially wrongfully accused. Um, and in preparing for this podcast even, um, I I was made aware uh, of just how um, horrifyingly common this really is. So we're going to be diving into uh, this in a bit more detail in just a second. But I, I was struck by uh, a Wayne State study that points to uh, as many as 10,000 wrongful convictions per year. And so today we're going to specifically talk about uh, what causes uh, that to happen and uh, kind of what, what options are available. And then uh, specifically dive into what, it's, what life is like after prison for those who shouldn't have been convicted in the first place. So our guest today is – an expert in this area, uh, somewhat unfortunately, Jeff Deskovic, uh, founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which is a New York-based 501c3 committed to the prevention of wrongful convictions in both DNA and non-DNA cases, which we'll uh, explain in a little bit, as well as the reintegration of exonerees. So again, those are folks that uh, were wrongfully convicted in the first place and then released. Uh, Jeff himself spent 16 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit uh, before ultimately being exonerated and released. So, Jeff, we really, really appreciate you being here and sharing your story and for all the amazing work that you do. For sure. Thank you very much. I'm glad to join you. Great. So first and foremost, just to, to paint context for this entire conversation, um, I was hoping that you could just dive into a bit about your story. So what happened? How the heck did you end up spending 16 years in prison for a crime you didn't do? Sure. So my wrongful conviction, which uh, happened despite a pre-trial negative DNA test result, was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, and a terrible public defender. So I was a 16-year-old uh, sophomore at Peekskill High School in Westchester County, New York. There hadn't been a murder there in about 20 years. The victim, Angela Correa, was a 15-year-old immigrant from Colombia who had been in the country for about a year and a half, leading a really sheltered life where she never went outside unless she was with her older sister or her parents. So the two factors that the police said put me on their radar is they said that uh, some of the kids in school told them they might want to talk to me because I was quiet and to myself. The other factor which they said that attracted them to me was they said I was overly upset at the victim having been murdered. Um, I, you know, um, so that was really my first brush with death, and so and I was kind of a sensitive kid, so I overreacted a bit. But the police took that as a sign of suspicion. So for about six weeks, they played this cat and mouse game with me, in which half the time they would talk to me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would pretend to need to uh, seek my help to solve the crime. 
they would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me on my opinions being correct. They made me feel important. They made me the center of attention. Uh, my fantasy childhood career was to be a cop. So this unexpected early opportunity to do this quasi-police work along with my age, 16, was how they pulled the wool over my eyes. Hmm. They got me to agree to take a polygraph test by telling me there was no information in the police file that they wanted to share with me. And But to get that, I would have to first take and pass a polygraph. So that was what led me to agree to take a polygraph. And that's what ultimately led to the coerced false confession. So I don't know if you want me to get into a little bit more about uh, the false confession itself, how that came about, or if that's you know more than what you want mm-hmm. to do on in your interview. And yeah, no, I, I think I, I actually we do want to dive in, but let's um let's just uh, wait a minute before we go Table down. That for now, you'll move on. Yep, sure. I, I, I okay. really do want to hear more uh, about how that um, how that can happen. But I suppose uh, so. You did spend sixteen years, ultimately sixteen years in prison. Was that is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I spent 16 years in prison. Yeah. I lost all seven of my appeals and I got turned down for uh, parole as well. And I saw that uh, just to put it out there, I thought it was uh, really striking that you mentioned you were turned down for parole because you were insisting on your innocence naturally. And the parole board favors folks that are remorseful for their crimes. Yeah. They they, they they express remorse, take responsibility, show insight. Sure. Hmm. So th- that dilemma, by the way, just you know, is referred to as uh, the innocent prisoner's dilemma. Hmm. You know, do you feign remorse and and those things we just mentioned in order to slightly increase your odds of being released, or on the other hand, you maintain your innocence but then run the risk of extending what's already been a unjust prison stay? Uh, so so it is it is a heck of a dilemma, and if you do cave and express remorse, and then Later, the conviction is overturned, but not dismissed. Hmm. Then the prosecutor uh, could use those statements at the parole board in order to try to re-wrongfully convict. Definitely. Um, And you mentioned that I think it's a little interesting that you initially were thinking about being a police officer. So what kind of qualities did you assume police officers would have that maybe the ones that you dealt with didn't show you? Yeah, the qualities I assumed that they would have that wasn't shown to me Mm -hmm. was that the they were there to help us. You know, they were, they were, they were our friend. They were there to protect us uh, from everyone else. The, 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 you know, be honest with them at all times. The idea that they could harm or could wrongfully convict or that was a, far, you know, a falsely accused. I mean, that was that was the farthest thing from uh, that was the farthest thing from my mind. Why do you think that they? You know, I didn't know that they could. Uh, I didn't know that they could lie to you either and claim to have evidence that they that they don't or engage in a different coercive tactics to the read technique that they do. I didn't know any of those things. What, what, why do, in your case, I guess, if you could speak to your case first, what do you think about the case made them target you in that way? Was it that there was pressure because there had been so few murders in the area? There was a lot of pressure on the police department to find the, the murderer quickly, and, and it was like a bad look if they weren't able to figure out who did it? Or, or what do you think the incentive was for the police to, to target you? Definitely there was public pressure. That was, that was, uh, that was, that, that was definitely true. Uh, but then they also had the state police breathing down the neck because the victim's family thought that they didn't know what they were doing. And so they went to the state police and asked the state police to take over the investigation. 
but they didn't, but they, you know, they put pressure on the Peekskill police. But then also, I mentioned to you, um, I got on their radar by other kids in the school telling them to look at me. And mm-hmm. then, you know, then there was, then they interpreted my sensitivity as being a sign of guilt. And maybe the last factor was that they obtained a psychological profile from the NYPD, which contained the psychological characteristics of what they thought that the actual perpetrator would, would be like. And I happened to meet, match that profile. Hmm. But of course, you know, the profile, you know, was nothing what the actual perp was like, you know, was, uh, you know, arrested and convicted, you know, many years later. Definitely. And I think it's, it's you know, obviously already a really trying and obviously not the most ideal situation. But, you know, from the outside looking in, the public obviously wishes that police departments could be accountable and like receptive to what the family wants. So it's just kind of crazy that all those things worked against your particular experience with them. Um, Could you go deeper into the moment where you kind of knew that things were changing, that maybe you would be facing time? Like, how did that happen or how did you feel in that moment? Well, I didn't. Well, that was that was only after I was aware that I was arrested. But in the six weeks run up to that, you know, where, where again, there was that, you know, they would start talking to me like a suspect and I wouldn't understand it. And then finally they would push too hard and I would start to get afraid. And that's when they would switch it up and start, to, you know, you know, Jeff as the junior detective help theme would be what they would been, then be emphasizing. So that's what kept me in proximity with them. Right. Got it. And then, so you spent 16 years in prison. Um, could you talk a bit about what sequence of events ultimately led to your release? So just if you could recap, uh, you lost all of your appeals. You ended up uh, serving the, the time in prison. How many times did you face the parole board during your 16 years? What, what was the, your sentence, I guess, is the first question. And then uh, how many times did you place parole? Face yeah, my parole first, uh, yes. Yeah, what was the process sure. like to my get released? First, the, 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 my sentence was 15 to life. And I faced the, uh, which means you have to do the 15 years mandatory minimum, and then you face the parole board for, you know, consideration for discretionary release. Um, so I, I faced the parole board once. I did 16 years off of a 15 to life sentence. So I, I made one appearance in front of them, got turned down, and wound up doing another year prior to being exonerated. Uh, in terms of the sequence of events that led me to be exonerated, three key things happened. So firstly, the Innocence Project, uh, which is a national organization that uh, frees wrongfully convicted prisoners around the country in those cases in which DNA testing uh, is, is a possibility and in which no prior testing has been conducted. So they agreed to take my case. And the second factor was that uh, former Westchester District Attorney Jeanine Pirro, who has two judge shows on television now, um, her office took the position that her office, um, I'm sorry, she had blocked me from getting further DNA testing twice before Mm -hmm. that. So she left office. So, um, and her successor had been in office for just like a year and a half. Uh, But then in terms of like some of the behind the scenes stuff, I mean, the um, new district attorney didn't didn't like the prior one, and the prior, you know, DA Piero was in the middle of a attorney general race at the time in which she was approached by the Innocence Project. Um, she was in she was in the middle of the attorney general race when the 
new DA was asked, would she allow me to have further testing? So I think that that was, that was a factor. So the third thing, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator had committed a, a second murder just three and a half years later. Uh, while I was doing time for his crime, he killed a school teacher and mother of two. Mm. And that resulted in his DNA being in the data bank. So that when I did get the testing, it matched him. And then he subsequently um, uh, confessed not just to authorities, but also to a reporter on video camera. So my charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds, mm. whereas he was um, charged and arrested and, and pled guilty to the crime. So, so in terms of, uh, so you mentioned, you know, being found by the Innocence Project as well as the district attorney turning over. With regards to just the last piece of what you mentioned, this was a, a question that Eric had, uh, had, I was curious about, was um, what role the perpetrator or the victim's family had in the exoneration process. So it sounds like specifically the, the perpetrator of the crime did ultimately confess prior to you being released? Yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the perpetrator confessed, but just so we understand that correctly, um, he only confessed because the DNA matched him. It's not like he came forward on his own. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it was because the gig was up. You know, the DNA matched him, and, you know, then he, then he confessed. But if the DNA didn't match him, I doubt he would have came forward, just like he hadn't uh, before that. Definitely. Would you say there is a system in place to exonerate people who are wrongfully convicted? Because it seems like, you know, it was sort of a lot of a lot of things were left to chance. Like if he hadn't committed another crime and the DNA wasn't available and things like that didn't happen, then maybe it wouldn't have gone as smoothly as it did. Yeah, my that's the part of my about my exoneration that bothers me the most is that it was in a haphazard place. Mm-hmm. Uh, haphazard, it did happen in a haphazard way such that it couldn't be relied upon to be re- replicated. Mm. Right. Um, so um, uh, in terms of whether there's something in place now, I mean, I think, I think, it, I guess it depends on, you know, to what extent that we want to consider. I mean, there are certain, there are certain places that district attorney's offices that have, what's called conviction review units where they proactively review claims of um, innocence. And some of them are legitimate, like like the Brooklyn district attorney when Ken Thompson was alive before he passed. I mean, that unit exonerated 23 people in two and a half years. Uh, But, you know, but then there's other units like the Manhattan DA's office uh, in in New York that basically is a a sham unit. Nobody has been exonerated there. You know, people have had to litigate wrongful conviction cases, ultimately winning on, you know, evidence that was fairly clear and then justice happened. Um, so there is, um, there are some places across the country where there are legitimate conviction reviewing units, so certainly not in every jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of innocence entities now that are doing this work, but at the same time, there isn't one in each state, and each one of the organizations has, you know, backlogs for days, and uh, a lot of them are DNA-centric, mm-hmm. so they'll only take on a case if DNA is a possible, using DNA as a possibility, which DNA is only available in 5 to 12%. Mm. Um, so, uh, so there is that limitation. Uh, there are more individual lawyers who are getting involved now, you know, uh, taking on you know, maybe one pro bono case. So there's starting to be 
more help, and I think that's one of the reasons why the amount of number of exonerations is going up uh, year year to year. But but as far as there being an across the board system in each state and the federal government for as a governmental entity that's trying to you know detect correct uh, wrongful convictions, the, the short answer is no. Mm-hmm. And in your case, you mentioned that there uh, – I don't know the exact language you used, but you said there was like actual a, a DNA mismatch that was known at the time of the trial. Is that what you said? Correct. Correct. So, so yeah, is that, that is that how correct. the Innocence Project found you or like how did how did that piece no. of it come to be? How did, how yeah, did they no, know no, to, no, to take your case? Yeah, so uh, – so in, in general, they, people write the Innocence Project and other entities looking for help. It's usually not that the places um, find you. But as to my case in particular, so I wrote, a, I wrote a letter to a book, Author and Care, the publishing company. And someone at the publishing company instead uh, forwarded it to an investigator. And the investigator um, contacted me and um, ultimately she... Um, tried to get, she connected me with the Innocence Project. So she um, suggested that I write them and then she lobbied them from outside their organization and she got other respected legal entities to lobby them also to for them to take my case. And then also I got lucky that uh, Maggie Taylor, who was uh, one of the intake workers at the Innocence Project, who wasn't a lawyer. And when the lawyers um, didn't want to take my case because of the pre-existing exclusion, she went back to the drawing board and came up with a new theory as to how DNA could be used uh, to constitute something new. So she had to present my case three times to them before they uh, agreed to to represent me. For sure. Um, And I'm sure this is something you probably thought about, you know, throughout the time you were serving and even now. Do you feel like like in hindsight that there was anything you could have done to prevent being wrongfully convicted? Like, were there moments where if you would have chosen to do something else, you know? Yes. Yeah. 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 There's several, there were several critical junctures. So firstly, um, if, uh, if I would have just asked for a lawyer, Mm -hmm. I mean, the police, you know, they had six weeks of interaction with them prior to the day of the coerced false confession. And they would read me my rights periodically, but, you know, I didn't. I didn't understand what what they meant. Right. I didn't understand their importance. So, um, you know, and the innocence of suspects often works against them because they think, well, because you're innocent and you don't know anything about the crime or what could possibly go wrong. But if I would have just uh, asked for a lawyer, this this wouldn't have happened. There's mm-hmm. No question. But then beyond that, if I would have been more more proactive in my defense, I mean, I was now in my well, no pun intended, but in my defense of not being proactive of my legal defense, <laughs> um, I was uh, I was 17 years old, and I knew nothing of the criminal justice system, and I had never been arrested. I didn't know what was what. But, you know, if I would have, but even having said that, you know, if I would have, you know, been more proactive with my lawyer and, you know, I mean, he very rarely met with me, you know, but if I would have stayed on top of him and really had him outline what was his strategy going to be, I mean, that that's something that I uh, regret. And probably the biggest thing of all, I mean, well, other than the lawyer invoking my right to a, an attorney, I really, really, really regret not taking the witness stand. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but again, my lawyer told me, 
I mean, I wanted to testify, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow me to, but I regret not insisting that I take the stand. But, you know, my lawyer told me that it wasn't his job to prove that I was innocent, that it was up to the prosecution to prove that I was guilty. And he didn't think that it happened. You know, that's a legal maxim, but you know, it's a slogan, but in reality, it doesn't work that way. You really have to, uh, prove that you're innocent or you run a risk of being wrongfully convicted, you know? So, and plus this was a, this was a confession case. You know, the evidence against me was coerced false confession. You mm-hmm. know, I think that in any confession case, you have to take the defendant, you have to take the stand. You got to answer that confession. You got to explain to the jury, why did you falsely confess? I mean, otherwise you're going down. Yeah. And- you know, an innocent person doesn't confess. Right. I mean, that's the common logic, even though we know that that's not true, that, you know, in 25 percent of the cases, um, of course, false confessions have been the cause of wrongful conviction. But that's the reality of it. Yeah. So, Jeff, in in preparing for this uh, conversation, um, I think that's what kind of struck me the most in terms of my own misunderstanding of how this can happen is just that uh, sure. I think I have the same assumption that most people have that is like, why would somebody – confess to something that they didn't do. Um, so I guess, could you uh, dive in and speak a bit more about what does uh, typically cause? So I know you mentioned that uh, false confessions is a big cause, but what typically does cause wrong convictions and why might somebody falsely confess? Right. So dealing with the confession part of the portion of the question first, um, lengthy interrogations, particularly uh, when combined with, uh, with food deprivation, uh, and as, as a, one of the factors that can lead an innocent person to confess, there's a high correlation of false confessions to, with uh, the polygraph. Uh, for me personally, uh, it was I was interrogated for, for six and a half to seven hours. They, they drove me from Peekskill to, uh, which is in Westchester County, to Pot, to Brewtown of Brewster in Putnam County, so 40 minutes away. So that meant I couldn't leave on my own. Um, it was a school day, so my my neither my mother nor grandmother knew where I where I was. They didn't call around looking for me. They uh, put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee in order to get me nervous. And then, um, and the polygraphist, uh, who was dressed as a civilian, he was pretending not to be a cop. Uh, he never he never read me my rights. He uh, attached me to the polygraph machine, and then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. I, I, I was I was 16, maybe 140 pounds, and he was uh, a mountain of a man. I wasn't used to talking or interacting with adult males, and so that made it especially frightening. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. And then he asked me, he told me, well, what do you mean you didn't do it? He just told me through the polygraph that you did. You know, we just want you to verbally confirm it. And so that really shot my fear through the roof. And, and the cop came in the room who was pretending to be my friend. And he told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he was holding them off. But, but he couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. And he added that if I did as they wanted, that they, they would stop what they're doing. I, I could go home afterwards. I was not going to be arrested. Um, a young, naive, frightened 16 being emotionally overwhelmed, psychologically overwhelmed, being in fear of my life because I, I was aware that I didn't know where I was and nobody else did either. And 
Mm-hmm. You know, then there was the possibility of harm, and then he threw me this false life preserver. So I made up a story based on information which they gave me in the course of the interrogation. So that's what yeah, happened so with me. Sounds um, like really, really a case of, of 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 desperation. I mean, they put you in a position where you yes. saw no other out other than uh, following what they were telling you. Um, and then, I mean, just in exactly, in, yeah. And then it, it sounds like some other common, uh, you know, bad tactics that are used are uh, the police kind of putting folks in a position where they believe that confessing actually would help them avoid more serious consequences, um, as well as um, yeah, actually – themes. Can, that's called theme. Yeah, the police mm-hmm. try to – they suggest the manner in which the crime might have happened, but they phrase it in such a way as to make it like seem like it would be understandable in there. Mm-hmm. And things that are understandable aren't punished, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so and then uh, I agree with that. Int- and then it sounds like mm-hmm. as well that uh, there's instances where the police actually convince folks that they they did commit the crime, but it was so out of character that they must have forgotten about it. That, you know that it must have been blocked out from their memory, um, and actually go get get folks to the point where they uh, convince themselves that they actually must have or that they actually could have could have done it, and they just don't remember. Um, which yeah, uh, that, yeah, yeah, that's called in. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that, that's I, I just say uh, the the point is just uh, there's there's lots of different reasons, um, and, and your story is you know really helped me, um, you know help raise my level of awareness of just like man if I was in your position when I was 16 years old like I wouldn't have known how to how to handle that and I could absolutely see myself in your shoes you know trusting sure. trusting yeah, law officers kind of- and 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 doing what they say like isn't that what you're supposed to do trust the cops. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's a great point. That type of confession, by the way, when <clears throat> someone momentarily doubts their own innocence, that's uh, referred to as um, an internalized false confession. But um, but the other part of your question before was you asked, like, what causes wrongful convictions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So definitely prosecutorial misconduct is a huge uh, factor that, that runs through almost all the wrongful conviction cases. Uh, misidentification has been the cause of wrongful convictions, and 75% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. Um, incentivized witnesses um, have been the cause of wrongful convictions, and 15% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. And by the way, most of the, a lot of cases, is more than one factor at play, which is why the numbers are greater than greater than 100%. Uh, certainly, bad wiring is huge. Um, public defenders, there's a big uh, disparity in resources and manpower and financial resources between the public defender's office and the district attorney's office. Uh, they have way too large a caseload. I mean, it's not unusual for one person to represent a hundred defendants at the same time. Uh, and most places don't have like a statewide system. So there's no oversight and, uh, quality control. Um, then also there's what's called uh, tunnel vision, which happens, which is, when a conclusion is uh, made, the tendency just to ignore evidence to the contrary while overemphasizing um, evidence that seems to fit the conclusion. Hmm. So that's another cause of wrongful conviction. For sure. And how frequently do you think um, people are wrongfully convicted? Yeah, well, there are, there, there I am aware of the Wayne State University study where it estimates like 10,000 new people are wrongfully convicted each year. I think the percentage of the inmate population that's actually innocent 
I would put it at uh, fifteen. I think it's, I think it's like fifteen to twenty percent. Fifteen to twenty percent of, um, of current inmates, I or fifteen so. to twenty percent of of convictions. Well, of convictions, of convictions. Mm-hmm. And is that? But there's a lot of mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that supports that. I mean, remember, like not long ago in Illinois, there was the mass exoneration day where fifteen people were exonerated at once, and then in the other states where thousands of people, you know, were exonerated at the same time based on a rogue forensic, uh, rogue forensic, uh, scientist. And, uh, other, there was another example in, uh, I forgot which city in Pennsylvania, but there was, um, somewhere between a hundred or 200 cases that were thrown out that, you know, because the officers were found to have been planting evidence. So there's all these different anecdotal things, but which go into my, uh, educated guess that that's, that's the percentage. I mean, 16, uh, 13 people were exonerated in the that I knew personally and did time with in the course of my 16 years. When you think about all the different, uh, I mentioned different rogue forensic scientists, but then like in Brooklyn, New York, there was a disgraced former detective, uh, Scarcella, who used, he used the same drug addict um, as a sole eyewitness in seven different murder cases. Hmm. You know, now, depending on which newspaper account you read, 40, 50, 70 of his cases are under review. Nine people have been exonerated that he worked on. But that's just a case in point of like he's not like the only one out there mm-hmm. of, of how much damage just one person can do. And I'm just building support for my anecdotal argument of thinking that the percentage is, you know, as high as 15 to 20 percent. Absolutely. And I encourage uh, anyone listening to check out. This is actually a resource that uh, that I, I believe was highlighted in your TED Talk. Um, so first of all, everybody should watch uh, Just TED Talk um, as well as his other interviews. But also um, the U.S. has a national – or it's not the U.S. It's a, it, there's a national registry of exonerations. Um, I think it's a project between the U of M law school and another and another law school. Um, so you can actually go yeah. on that database and read about um, – there's a, a huge list of, of – got to be thousands of folks that have been successfully exonerated. And you can see how long they were in prison what went wrong. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about specific cases of, of people that have been exonerated, um, you can go on that database. Uh, if you just Google the uh, National Registry of Exonerations and we'll also link to it as well. Mm-hmm. I'm also really intrigued by the the gaps that your experience kind of highlights with the criminal justice system because it seems like, okay, even if people can't seem to care about um people who they assume are criminals or, you know, doing criminal activity, they should at least care about the victims, right? So um, there seems to be some sort of discrepancy, even with like, you know, the rape kits in Detroit and things like that, that are coming um, to light where, you know, if we have kits that aren't being tested and we also have, you know, people who are being wrongfully convicted, then there has to be some sort of reform or like official change put into place for things to get better. Um, so it, it, I just feel like this is an issue that affects more than just the people who are in jail, but it's a broader sense of like just recklessness or like carelessness involved as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I, I, listen, pa, pa, uh, an a, a ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as as and as um, another 
uh, as Professor uh, Marvin Zalman, who has a number of papers written on wrongful conviction, as he once put it in a personal conversation with me. And I mean, he said, look, you know, we can't exonerate our way ourselves out of this problem. Right. You yeah. know, clearly we need to rate to get people out that are in wrongfully. But, you know, the, the, the permanent solution long term is we need to prevent this from happening in the first place. But the problem is that many legislatures are resistant mm -hmm. to changes. I mean, it's known that, you know, videotaping interrogations from beginning to end, that that is, that is a way to address uh, wrongful convictions caused by coerced false confessions. You know, I want a false confession expert testimony and uh, having an additional hearing where the accuracy of a confession is, is, is compared uh, by the judge, decided by the judge before um, it could be used as evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, the be best practices for identification are known. Uh, it's known what the deficiencies are in the public defender system, and and it's known that uh, one legislative change to prevent wrongful convictions by line performance is having an external evidence corroboration requirement. In other words, no one should be convicted based only on an informant. But the legisl uh, legislature, legislatures are, are very hesitant to enact any of these changes. And so, you know, people can just be, can, people can be wrongfully convicted just as easily now as in the older cases, because the same deficiencies that led to, the, to them in the first place mm. have largely not been enacted. And then even when things are enacted, it's, it's, it's not, it's not the full best practices lacking certain, certain, um, certain elements, you know, and DNA is only around in 5 to 12%. So we can't rely that DNA is here, that this couldn't happen now, because in 88% of the cases, it's not even an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, this is why we're so thrilled to, to have you, uh, you know, talking about this and, and sharing this mm -hmm. with our audience here, because I think uh, I, for one, can, can only speak for me, but I had no idea how common uh, this really is, how frequently this happens, mm -hmm. or... Um, just how many opportunities throughout the process there there is for things to go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so this has been, you know, this learning about this has been really enlightening for me, and I'm really uh, excited about the the work you're doing with the foundation and um, and everything. So we can, uh, and I, I want to get into the specifics about that in just a second. But before we do that, uh, let's take a, a slight um, change of pace here. Uh, can you speak about uh, so you went through the process? Uh, the innocence got got involved with the innocence project. Uh, the actual perpetrator of the crime uh, was found guilty. Can you speak about um, actually getting released uh, and and what yes what it was like uh, once you were on the outside? Yes. So so I I remember when I was uh, I I remember when I well, when I was released and. I mean, well, first of all, the case was supposed to go back in front of the same the trial judge, but you know, he 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 ducked it and assigned it to somebody else. And uh, this judge rushed in, and you know, my lawyer spoke and he spoke and he said the same thing, and he just overturned the conviction and like he rushed out of the room. So it was almost like I had the impression like he didn't want to be associated or involved in this in any kind of way. And then I got up to walk out and I took a step and then the enormity of the moment hit me and uh, like a ton of bricks, you know, and, and I had to sit down. It was too much for me. And maybe like a half hour later, I got up and I walked out 
And with each step that I took, that was uh, no one stopped me. It got more and more real. I remember there was a, a bailiff who was standing at attention at the door, and she was trying to be professional. But I saw, you know, the water was running in her eyes. And I mm. looked up at her, and we made eye contact. And I said, thank you. And she said, good luck. And I went outside, and there was, the sky was blue, and there wasn't a cloud to be found. And uh, uh, my first words at the press conference were, is this really happening? Does it just feel felt surreal? Got it. But in terms of what it was like to just be out in general, I mean, the fanfare and the media, that was all great. That goes away like super quick. And, and that's when the rubber hits the road. And the reality of it was that I had to deal with the psychological after effects of the experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I um, had uh, my my immediate and extended family had become strangers to me because they very rarely visited. I didn't understand the technology. I mean, internet, GPS, cell phones hadn't been in, invented. I didn't understand the culture. I long since lost track of uh, you know all my friends, so I was socially uh, isolated. There was the stigma of having been in prison wrongfully, yes, but you were still there. Is it you know a uh, safe to? you know, be alone someplace with you, how much of that rubbed off on you. So there was a stigma. Uh, I didn't have stability of housing. I bounced from place to place. I nearly ended into a homeless shelter. Um, so it was, uh, I was never able to obtain gainful employment because I had no work history. I didn't know the technology. And then there was the stigma, which I referenced. So it was a really hard five years before I was uh, compensated. But in those five years, though, I mean, I did a lot of advocacy work as an individual from writing to speaking to meeting with black officials and uh, doing the media interviews and then pursuing formal education. I got the scholarship from Mercy College. I got a bachelor's degree and I wound up getting a master's from John Jay and I'm uh, two years, uh, I'm, I'm nearly finished two years in law school. So I uh, <clears throat> married formal education with the advocacy work I did as an individual for those five years prior to being compensated financially. And so on this podcast, obviously, we uh, talk a lot about um, what it's like for folks to get out of prison in, a, in, a, in many different contexts. Um, and so just to kind of summarize what I'm hearing from you, um, largely most of the challenges uh, that you know we've identified that, that folks have when transitioning out of prison just because you were innocent, you you don't have a felony tied to your record, and you don't you're Correct. not on parole. But Correct. pretty much otherwise, you were separated. How what what years were you in prison? Yeah, from 1990 to 2006. So from age 17 to 32. So so you I mean, everyone think about uh, from 1990 to. 2006. I mean, that's uh, in terms of technology. You 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 missed cell phones and the internet, um, yeah. amongst other things. Uh, so yeah, I mean, completely completely understandable in terms of how difficult that must be without work history, without understanding technology, um, to find work, uh, despite not having a, a felony on your record and and all the other things you just described. It uh, it makes complete sense. Um, Can I just it, add one quick point? Please, on that, absolutely. Though? Um, and then we'll go to the next question. I, I know we got to move fast. Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to be quick. Um, the prisoner reentry organizations would not help me. 
just like they don't help exonerees. Hmm. They are funded for people on parole. They're funded for people on probation. And mm-hmm. so being, a, you know, they, would, they wouldn't help. And, you know, my argument to them was, well, look, I know what you're funded for, and I'm outside that, but I have the same, a lot of the same needs. Wow. And so what if you can't cite me as what you're doing with the money, what the grants and donations you got? I mean, the lights are paid, your salad, the door opens, you know, let me have a seat and just serve me also with everybody. I mean, what difference does it make? You know, but, but I got nowhere with that argument. Several places would not. Would, would not help me. So I guess my point is that um, while there is some help for people on parole, there isn't any for people who are exonerated. That That's the point in front of me. Right. And did you anticipate any of that on the way out? Like since you didn't have access to those resources, no. were you? Okay. No, I naively thought that I could get that. And when I was daydreaming of, free, of being free while I was in prison, like what I would do if I was exonerated. I mean, I had this ideal life. I thought that, you know, I was going to, I thought that I would be able to get a job uh, doing something meaningful that I enjoyed being paid the same level that I would have been paid had my life not been disrupted. I thought I would have, you know, lived in a neighborhood where I wanted to live. I thought I would, you know, go to all these different places and have all these experiences that I just saw on television, not thinking about the financial component to that, not thinking about, well, those things are only fun to do. You know, if there's people to do it with the social, I thought I would be, it would be easy to, I didn't even stop and think, well, Hey, you know, putting together a social circle in and of itself is going to be a challenge. I didn't anticipate the stigma. I anticipate not being helped. I had this idea that I would be compensated right away, Mm -hmm. you know, very, very quickly. And that in the interim that the government would assist me because it was their you know, what they did to me in the first place that right. caused this to happen. But I quickly disabused of all of that. And so, Jeff, we we want to dive in and, and talk about the foundation. And obviously, we're, we're running low on time here. But uh, before we do that, I want to ask just two questions. But if, if you wouldn't mind just giving uh, very concise answers sure. to make sure that we can talk about the foundation. Um, Eric had a great question, which was yes. just, uh, did the prosecutor show any remorse on your behalf? No, he didn't. No, he, 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 no, he didn't. As a matter of fact, he, re, he suddenly retired two weeks before I came out and he ran to Florida to get oh. away from the media firestorm that happened. Wow. But he's never issued any apology. And then just again, quickly, uh, with regards to suing for damages, so you were able to arrive at a, a settlement, but I know I've heard of other cases where folks are not able to settle. Um, do you have a sense? Is it, is it common to be able to, to settle for damages and to be compensated by the the state or the federal government? Yeah. Um, well, there's 23 states that do not have any compensation at all on the books. And then there's some states that are counted as having compensation that have problems with them. Like Florida has like a clean hands provision. So if you've been convicted of a crime before or after the wrongful conviction, you wouldn't be eligible. Uh, New Jersey has, um, you can't contribute to your own wrongful conviction and still be eligible. So if you falsely confessed or, Pled guilty, then that would be a bar to uh, compensation. Um, so, I mean, I, there is a percentage of people that are. I mean, most. I, I would say a, a, health, a good amount of people are compensated, but there's still a substantial portion um, that 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 do, that do not. 
Hmm. Um, places like Wisconsin, five thousand dollars a year in compensation, right? With a cap of twenty-five grand. I mean, one other another state escapes my um, which one off the top of my head, but their idea of compensation is university education. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are not uh, comp- uh, not are not compensated. So maybe maybe like around sixty percent are Got roughly. It. And something that I heard you say in an interview or it might have been in the TED Talk was just the fact that if we, as a society, if we took the resources that were being paid out in settlements to people when these things go wrong, that money could just be used to fix the damn system and to to avoid this happening in the first place. So when, you know, this is a point you made when they – when they say there's not a budget to make these changes or to pay for video monitoring of interrogations, like what are you talking about? What about this? all this money that's being paid out for – in settlements, you know, it's, it's crazy, crazy. <laughs> exactly right, and a, lot, and a lot of these changes could be could be could be uh, done for cheaper than the amount of money that's being paid out in, on on the back end. Right. Definitely. I mean, to say nothing to say nothing of, you know, to say nothing of the, the the human cost and what what price freedom and and by the way, you know, I just want to point out that while when you send the wrong person to prison, you do send their family, right. but in a larger sense. This is a public safety issue because each time the wrong person is convicted, the actual perpetrator is free to strike again, which right. is what happened in my case. For sure. Um, I think it's, it's great that you've been able to sort of endure this experience and turn it around so that you can do your best to make sure nobody else has to experience it. Um, so in that same vein, can you tell us a little bit more about the Jeffrey Deskovich Foundation for Justice? Yes, yes. So... I mentioned earlier that um, I did advocacy work as an individual advocate for five years. But once I was compensated, I suddenly, you know, had the means. I decided, you know, I wanted to ratchet up my advocacy work. I wanted to, I wanted to free people. And so I took some of the money that I got and I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which, um, you know, has the mission of exonerating the innocent and preventing um, wrongful uh, convictions. So in our five and a half years, we uh, we freed seven we freed seven people. And um, we've contributed to the kind of sort of change of uh, videotaping interrogations and better lineup and better lineup practices in New York. But again, they watered it down, and there's a whole class of crimes like second degree murder and other sex offenses where videotaping interrogations is not uh, mandatory, and they don't have the full best practices. So hmm. I'd be part to just quick um, share just that. I do the work that I do because, you know, I need to make my suffering count for something. And I feel like, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm in the world. I'm in the world to fight wrongful conviction. And that's how I make sense of, you know, of what, of what happened, uh, of what happened, uh, to me. And, you know, I take the energy that I feel from what happened to me and I channel it into my advocacy work. And so that's how I'm, you know, I'm not angry. I'm not bitter. I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And, I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter, but having that outlet, the advocacy work for that energy, you know, that's what enables me to that to be uh, to be a reality. Well, you inspire the hell out of us. That's really amazing to hear. Um, and and I, if you could just uh, dive into a bit more detail about the, you mentioned being surprised about the lack of resources for yourself transitioning out of prison. How yeah. how is the foundation helping exonerees return to society? Yeah, so at one point we had we 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 had uh we had a two we had a two bedroom apartment which served as short term uh housing for for exon for exonerees. We um 
uh, we connected the exonerees with each other. There was a, a fellowship aspect to it. We would involve the exonerees in different forms of advocacy work, which is, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, cathartic. So we uh, uh, certainly mentorship was another aspect. So it was kind of a combination of uh, formal and informal. Um, and we, we did that. We did that for, uh, about three years. We did as a pilot. You know, we wanted to get additional funding to replicate that, but you know, we were not able to get additional funding, and so you know, we eventually had to close down the apartment and just narrow the mission a bit. You know, just on the uh, policy aspect of it and and, and exonerating people. So our, our uh, for uh, folks but, but that I am, I am happy. I am happy that we did help a few people to to reintegrate. I mean, one person was able to open a juice bar and get a college degree because of that stability of housing. While another person got from point A to point B uh, yeah. in in his life, where he was um, uh, compensated and and he went on his way from there. So I'm happy that we did we did do it. But I mean, it's an initiative I'd like to bring back at some point in the future. But that's going to be when. We're able to get uh, public support to uh, support that. Absolutely, and so let's uh, let's round out and, and talk about that quickly. Which is just uh, how how can folks get involved? Um, what what uh, what is the best way for for someone listening who uh, you know is is fired up about mm-hmm. this cause to to get yeah. involved and make an impact? Sure. So there's a website called. Uh, Patreon, which is uh, like a crowdfunding site, and is for people who are willing to uh, be a, recur- a recurring monthly donor. So my dream is this: imagine for a second, dream with me, both you two and the audience. Right? <laughs> dream twenty-five thousand people could afford three dollars a month on a recurring basis. Right? Imagine that that would give close to a dollar budget. So I have everything mapped out on that on the site exactly what the money would go for, priced out according to nonprofit standards. I mean, we, you know, we would hire lawyers and paralegals and investigators and someone to do fundraising and and you know an executive director, all the personnel really needed to, you know, have a really robust organization. So uh, people making contributions, but more importantly, helping to help me make that go viral. You know, just for, for the word of mouth, social media, uh, any. Anything, anything goes. So there's that. Uh, but then also we do we do um, accept volunteers. Uh, if there's any lawyers who are listening, I mean, I, I always say this when I'm in, in a law school. Um, every lawyer should do at least one case, one wrongful conviction case pro bono. So that's another way that people certainly uh, attending wrongful conviction uh, events. Uh, we, we do, we participate in a lot of events with people showing up to that, people calling their elected officials and asking for, you know, changes. I mean, we're trying to get a, oh, pass the first one in the country. We're trying to pass a commission on prosecutor conduct, an independent oversight board, mm-hmm. you know, so people would contact their elected officials, uh, people learning more about wrongful conviction causes and then sharing that with friends and family. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another, uh, that's another, uh, that's another, uh, aspect. Uh, of it, if you have some kind of skill or talent, it probably does apply to to an organization um, doing this type of work. So again, there's there's always plenty to do. So if people yeah. want to jump in, uh, jump in that way. And, I mean, really, the limits are, or just as far as you can imagine, yeah. only limited by our imagination. And on the flip side of that coin, uh, for folks that that are listening that may uh, actually be themselves exonerees or are wrongfully convicted, um, or the families of of those folks. Um, <laughs> you know, can they reach out to you? Is there, what, what would you recommend for folks in that situation? 
Yes, I, what I would recommend is this. I mean, they can, yeah, I mean, they, the web, my website is deskovic.org, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. Um, <clears throat> they can, they can, um, they, they can reach out. So that's one aspect, uh, one way of doing it. You know, but again, this is a bigger problem than just what one entity can do. And, you know, we're slammed with 500 cases that have been waiting as long as three, four years just to be screened. Sure. You know, so there is a best instantaneous help. I don't want to paint a picture beyond what, what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that a few things to keep in mind. I mean, firstly, people should look for, throw as many lines into the water as you can. And, and whoever bites first, that's who you go with. So having like a short letter, nice and tight, you know, about the case, uh, that's really important to summarize it and send it around, you know, but, but not more than two paragraphs. People think if you, the longer the letter and the more details and the more documents, the bigger the letter, the more documents, the less likely you're going to get help. Hmm. Okay. I'm innocent. This I wrongfully convicted of this. This is my sentence. This is what the evidence was against me. This is what's flawed about it. These are my best two or three facts in the record that I can demonstrate to you that I'm innocent. Some suggestions as to how we can go about finding some new evidence. Uh, I have more documents I can send to you. I have some documents I can send if you'd like to see them. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the formula right there. Okay. And I wrote the letters and I received the letters. Now, beyond, and that's used to send that around to, you know, large firms, small firms, innocence organizations, individual lawyers. So there's that. And that text could also be used if somebody wanted, wanted to try to crowdfund for a particular case. That's the same formula you'd use for that. Um, now, beyond that, changing gears, my general advice to people would be, number one, don't quit. If I had quit, I would not be free. Uh, I would not be free right now. Number two, go to the law library. Learn the area, learn the law, the area of the law pertaining to your case. Three, collect as much information about wrongful convictions as as uh, as you can. People, I used to we get article, read or collect articles of people who were exonerated. You know, what route did they take? Who helped them? After what, you know, even those are ideas. To uh, those are ideas. Even who who else to write for help? Uh, don't get involved in the prison politics. Uh, focus in, uh, focus in on, you know, your case, trying to get help. Read nonfiction books each, each time whenever I would burn out each day, my mind would be fried. I would read something non, uh, I would read something, uh, nonfiction. You have to fight off the feelings of helplessness, helplessness, depression. Don't you dare ever think to give in, to give up or take your own life. Those are all battles that go on within the mind. That's just as much a part of the struggle as it is going against the prosecutor and the court. That's, uh, that's the best of the advice that I can give, both for those so wrongfully convicted. I would share that to their friends and family, apply the same things to them. That's what they should be telling people. Listen, the morale and the outside contact is so important for people to um, keep going. And the people who are free, they can be conduits of that information, the wrongful conviction uh, cases where people are exonerated and, and other information. They can help send that. Because when you're a prisoner, you're helpless. You don't have access to the information. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, you definitely serve as a nice example for anyone, honestly, who's going through something or trying to work to get something started. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. And I'm sure I already know a lot of people are going to benefit from the jewels that you've dropped in the last hour. So, <laughs> thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, having me on the show.